You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. I've had a a kind of uneven history of personal evangelism. I, uh, I shared my faith a whole lot more when I was younger than I have since then. And lately I've been asking myself why that's the case. I became a Christian uh, the summer of 1968, um, many, back before the, just after the earth cooled, but uh, <laughs> after fighting with Jesus for quite a while, um, and immediately got into a, a small men's Bible study of college students. And my first day there, uh, I'd been a Christian probably two weeks, and the leader announced that the next week we wouldn't be studying the Bible, we are going to go share our faith in a park. And I had no idea what that meant. So the following week we met at the park and we divided, we paired up, and uh, my partner and I approached a gang that was seated at a park bench, and, and, uh, or a park table. And at that point, I'd been a Christian three weeks, I knew about as much about the gospel as, as the table we were sitting at. And, uh, and yet I found myself talking about the changes I was seeing Christ make in my life and, and uh, uh, how exciting it was. And one of the guys said, well, are you ready to die for your faith? And in all sincerity, I said, absolutely. And it was about that time my partner excused us and led us on. <laughs> but I, uh, I had never experienced that kind of joy before in my life. Uh, Went back to school at Long Beach and got involved with uh, Crew or Campus Crusade, it was a call back then, and, and it was a ministry of college students that spent a lot of time talking to strangers about Christianity, and we spent a lot of time uh, between classes talking to people out. And then at uh, spring break, back then, everybody uh, went to the Colorado River. And uh, so we went to the Colorado River and spent three days talking to people about, uh, about Christ. That was the first time I ever saw anybody actually come to faith. Six, six people prayed to receive Christ that day, um, which sold me. This is, this is what I want to spend my life doing. So when I graduated a little over a year later, I joined the staff of, of crew, and they assigned me to Cal. And that was 1970. That was during the Vietnam protests and the People's Park demonstrations. And it was an exciting time to be on campus. And uh, everybody felt free to say whatever they wanted, and we did. And uh, it was a, a very, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but we were actually part of a, of a nationwide movement among young people that God was doing and bringing a lot of people to Christ. Well, after the Vietnam War, things on campus kind of cooled down to normal. And we began to focus on, well, how can we be better at sharing our faith? And we began to focus on technique, began to focus on approach, tried to to be uh, more um, subtle about how we brought the gospel up and how to build relationships with people over time so that we could earn the right to speak to them. And, and, and that was a good thing. But the thing I noticed is that the more we focused on technique, the more fearful we became of sharing our faith and we began to share our faith less and less. And that kind of continued. And I think what I've realized lately, that it is not technique or skill that makes someone effective in sharing their faith. It's their heart. 
It's the heart they have for Jesus and the heart they have for people. And that's why this morning I want to talk to you as we continue in 1 Corinthians on the heart of a missionary. We are all missionaries because a missionary is someone who is sent. And Jesus says in John 17, as the Father sent me, I have sent you. So the question is, what does the heart of a missionary look like? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians is, consists of two parts. Chapters 1 through 6, Paul addresses some problems he's heard that are happening in the church. And then from chapter 7 to the end, of the, he, he answers questions that the church has sent him. So it's a pretty simple book to, to, to understand how it's organized. And the problem we're looking at right now in chapters 8 through 10 is, can we eat meat offered to idols? Which is not a burning issue um, in America today, but it was in Corinth. Corinth was full of temples. And in all these temples, they would offer daily animal sacrifices to the god or goddess of that temple. And the god or goddess didn't eat much, and so they had a lot of meat left over, and so they found a kind of a profit source by having a restaurant attached to that, that temple. And so the Corinthians want to know, is it okay for us to eat meat offered to idols in these temples? That's the question Paul is addressing. It's interesting, Paul does not say yes or no. But he says it depends. And he really gives us a way to understand decisions we have to make that the Bible doesn't give us clear yes or no's on. And there's lots of those, right? Lots of things where Christians disagree. Can you do this or can you do this? I played on a rugby team and we had a, a couple of Christian players from South Africa. And they were two of the best players on the team. And so we were surprised when uh, they announced that we were having a, a weekend tournament and they couldn't play on Sunday. And we said, why not? And they said, well, we, we believe, don't believe you should play sports on Sundays. And the other Christians on the team couldn't understand that, especially since they were two of the better players. And, uh, but that just, there are things like that, that where Christians, honest Christians, sincerely disagree. Alcohol, certain movies and, and uh, TV programs and, and uh, all kinds of activities. And, and Christians have tended to go in one of two extremes in dealing with these gray areas. One area is legalism. And, and legalism is, legalists need a rule for every situation. So there's no grays, there's just blacks and whites. And if it's not white, it's black. And uh, so they make all kinds of rules for all kinds of things. And on the other extreme is license. And people that indulge in license don't believe, every, don't believe in grays either. They believe in black and white. And they say everything, anything that's not forbidden in the Bible is white. It's okay to do. Paul says there's a third option. And that is the option of wisdom. It depends on the situation. And so he's going to lay out these principles of how do you make a decision? Should I do this or should I not do this? 
And the first principle he gives is it doesn't matter if you're free to do it. That is, that the Bible doesn't say anything against it. You have to also look at how does it affect your fellow Christians. And we saw this last week. Not only are you free, but does it benefit others? And he gives the illustration. Suppose one of your weaker brothers, who's been an idol worshiper for years, sees you eating meat offered to idols in, in, the, uh, in the temple. What if he free, feels free to go back to the temple too and gets caught up and enmeshed in his old habits of idolatry? You have sinned against your brother and sinned against Christ, which is black and white. So the issue is not just, is it legal, but is it loving? What effect does this have on other people? Well, now Paul anticipates the Corinthians' response, because the Corinthians would be great Americans. They, uh, it's all about my freedom, my rights, what I am able to do. You can't make me do anything. And so Paul anticipates that, and in chapter 9, he uses his own rights as an example of laying aside rights in order to benefit other people. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 in Paul's rights, then we're going to look at verses 15 through 18 and how Paul used those rights, and then we're going to talk about how we apply Paul's heart to our heart. You with me? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that performs its work in us who believe. We want to be good soil. We want to be people who hear and believe and apply your word. We need you to teach us, and we trust you to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians 9 here. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not as free as you guys? Am I not an apostle? Now, when Paul says, am I not an apostle, he's thinking of apostle in a capital A rather than a small a. Because remember, the apostles, the original apostles were the authorities in the church. They were the original pioneers that Jesus sent out to take the gospel to places that hadn't been before. And, uh, and Paul was included in that group. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? One of the qualifications to be an apostle is you had to have walked with Jesus. Uh, when in, in Acts 1, when the apostles gather to decide who's going to replace Judas, Judas, they said, it's got to be somebody who's been with us since the baptism of John. So you say, well, but Paul wasn't even a Christian then. How could Paul have seen Jesus? And if you remember in Acts, three, at least three times, Jesus appears to Paul to give him instructions. So Paul says, I qualify as an apostle. I've seen Jesus. Are you not my work in the Lord? Remember, apostles are sent out to plant churches. And Paul says, the fact that there's now a church in Corinth where there wasn't one before proves that I'm an apostle. Are you not the seal of our seal of authenticity of my apostleship? in the Lord. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of apostleship, my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? That is to be actually be provided with food for our labor. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, 
even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. Remember, two, at least we know at least two of Jesus' brothers became apostles, James and Jude, because they have books in the Bible. Um, or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? So Paul's comparing himself to the other apostles. And he says, I'm an apostle. Don't I have the right? Do, do I not have the right to take along a believing wife as all the rest of them, which apparently they were all married, unlike Paul? Uh, don't we have the right to be paid for our labor, to eat and drink? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? The, the Corinthians were used to seeing the Roman soldiers, the professional army, who kept order and protected the empire. Uh, they were paid for their labor. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of it? Paul's point here, in this world, nobody works for free. If you work you get paid. I am not speaking of these things according to human judgment, am I? Also, does not the law also teach these things? He's talking about the Mosaic law here. For it is written in Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? The, the command here is that when the ox is working, let him eat. Let him eat something he's threshing. And Paul's point is, of course God is concerned about oxen because he's concerned about all life. But in comparison, this is one of those, if this is true, how much greater is this? If God is concerned about the oxen being able to eat while he works, how much more is he concerned about people? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope in sharing the crops. If God is concerned about oxen being able to eat, how much more is he concerned about people being paid for what, they're, uh, what they do, for their work? If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? People in ministry have the same bills as everybody else. So if you pay your plumber, you got to pay your pastor, which, which you guys do very well. If others, and I think others means other Christian leaders, share the right to be paid over you, do we, your original pastor, not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. While Paul was in Corinth, he did not ask for a salary from the Corinthians, but he worked as a tent maker, provided for himself and for his disciples that way. And this was pretty much his practice. He would either work as a tent maker or live off the contributions sent to him occasionally from other churches because he felt like it gave the gospel greater entry into that society. I have a friend who who was a, a missionary in a closed country. Um, if he went in as a missionary, he wouldn't be allowed. So he started a business and is an international businessman and works in this country as a businessman. It's not that he doesn't have the right to be paid for his ministry, but there's no church there. Christians here would support him, and, and we do as a church. We support him. But he also supports himself through his business because it gives him greater entree, entree to that culture, 
then if they wouldn't let him in if he applied to come in as a missionary. He had to have a reason. And that's true of many places like Corinth today where there is no church established and the only way Christians can get in there is if they come in as working at a job, working at a profession. It's their profession that get them in. Paul says, because it makes me more effective with the gospel, I'm willing to lay aside my right to be paid and work... Uh, Paul gives another argument in verse 13. He says, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? I don't know if Paul is talking about the temple in Jerusalem or if he's talking about temples in general. But the same thing is true. Priests and priestesses make their living off the temple. This is just common practice. And then he gives his best argument. He says, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Jesus, when he sends out the 12, he says, don't take any money with you. Don't take any food with you. For a worker is worthy of his wage. But whatever town you go to, eat what is put before you. And this is the way the apostles lived from then on. They depended on who they were ministering to to support them. It's the way Jesus lived. Jesus never took a salary, did not work, but during the time of his ministry, he was supported by contributions. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle. I have the same rights as other apostles to be paid. Workers are paid for their work. The law teaches that workers should be paid. Jesus taught that those who minister should be financially supported. And even Paul taught it. Paul taught that pastors and elders should be paid. So, so he's making a kind of a foolproof argument here that he has the right to receive a salary for what he's doing. But look how he uses that right. Verse 15, but I have used none of these things. And that's Paul's point. Though I have the right to be paid, I haven't used that right. And I'm not writing these things so it may be done in my case. It's, I'm, this is not my sly little way of saying, you guys should start paying me now. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under obligation. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. This is not a profession. This is not a job. This is a calling of God. God has called me to preach the gospel, and woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I don't have any choice in it. For if I do this voluntarily, that is, choose not to receive a salary, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Either way, I've got to preach the gospel. A steward was a slave who oversaw the property, finances, and, and of his 
master. And Paul says, that's who I am. I am a steward of God. Slaves aren't paid. Therefore, I don't need to be paid. I am doing this because I am called by God. What then is my reward of not being paid? Why does he do it? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. There were times that Paul worked as a tent maker. There were times he received money from other churches. What mattered was what gave him the greatest freedom and opportunity to preach the gospel. That's what mattered to him. That's the heart of a missionary. Whatever it takes to get the gospel out. I will give up anything I have a legitimate right to if it will make me more effective in preaching the gospel. That's his point here. So you Corinthians who are pleading, I'm free, it's for freedom that Christ set me free. If you really have the heart of Christ, if you have the heart of a missionary, the issue is not your freedom. It's how can I benefit the other people around me? That's, that's the point he's making. That's his heart. Whatever it takes to be, reach people with the gospel. I preach the gospel because I love Jesus. I preach the gospel because I love people, not because I get paid for it. That's Paul's point. What I realize from this is I don't need a better evangelistic strategy are better techniques. I need a better heart. And so I began to ask myself, what rights do I hang on to that make me less effective with people? That I would be more effective if I gave those rights up. Now, mine may not be yours. But I'm going to share three rights, three things I believe I have a right to that because I hang on to, it keeps me from being free to share the gospel. Does that make sense? You're going to have to come up with your own. Okay? But uh, let's look at it. First is, um, I think I have a right to control my time. I, I tell God I'm available to him. I want to be used by him. I just want to tell him when. I have time I'm on the clock, and I have time that I'm off the clock. And, and for some reason, God seems to want to use me when I'm off the clock. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was getting dressed after swimming at, the, at the, our locker room the other day, and, and uh, all I could think about, this is a typical of me, because I'm very time-oriented, and I've always got, what's the next thing on the schedule? That's just who I am. And so I'm, I'm getting, I'm in a hurry to get dressed, because I think about all the stuff I've got to get to the office to do. And there's a guy beside me who never talks, but he just, he seems to want to talk. And, and I, I'm polite to him, but I've got, to, I've got things to do, places to be, right? And so I excused myself. And about an hour later, it hit me. That was an opportunity God gave you that you dropped. 
you foiled. Because I, I am so focused on my time, my schedule. I'm always looking at what's the next thing I have to do. And so what I realized is that if I want to be used by God, I've got to give my right to control my time away and be on his schedule rather than on, on my own. One of the things I noticed about Jesus is that Jesus was always right in the moment. You ever notice that? That uh, in Mark 5, a synagogue official comes to Jesus and says, please come to my house. My little daughter is dying. And Jesus says, okay. And they're waking their way. It's, it's slow going because there's always huge crowds around Jesus and, and, and they're trying to get to the synagogue official's house. And there's a woman who has been suffering from internal bleeding for 12 years and she spent all her money and, and on doctors who haven't helped her. And as she sees Jesus walking by, she says to herself, if I could just touch his robe, I'll be healed. And so she, as he's walking by, she reaches out and touches his robe and immediately feels a great change in her body. But Jesus stops and he says, who touched me? And Peter says, you're in a crowd. What do you mean who touched you? And, and Jesus says, no, I felt the power go from me. And so the woman, the last thing she wanted was to be, be public, you know, but she comes in and she falls at his feet and she tells him this long story. Twelve years and I went to this doctor. And then I went to this doctor, and then I went to this doctor, I went to this doctor, and he is patiently listening to this long story. And finally she gets done, she says, he says, daughter, go in peace, your faith has made you well. Meanwhile, the synagogue official is like a cat on a hot tin roof. We gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go, what are you talking to her for? And then he gets the worst possible news, somebody comes to his house and he says, you can forget about this. She's died. And Jesus turns to him and says, don't be afraid. Only believe. And Jesus arrives at the house and there's all these people weeping and crying. And, and he says, why are you crying? She's just asleep. And, and they all laugh at him. But he gets them out of the house and only lets her mom and dad and his disciples be with him and he goes into the room where a little body is laying and he just says get up and she does and he says you might want to give her something to eat now if I had been Jesus here's the way this this thing would have happened you've got to come to my house my daughter is dying okay let's go and, and I'm going as fast as I can, right? And I completely ignore the woman because, you know, we, don't, we could have a nice conversation, but I don't have time for her right now. And, and I get to the house, and it's too late. She died. Oh, and I'd give up. Because I don't believe that God is in charge of every second like Jesus does. You see the difference? I'm not in the moment. And the thing I've noticed about conversations that go somewhere, conversations where you can share your faith, is you can't plan them. You, you, you just kind of 
got to have enough time to kind of talk about nothing with people for a while before they feel comfortable talking to you. Isn't that true? That, that the best conversations are conversations that come from lingering, just being available to talk. And I don't have those conversations because I don't linger well. I've got something to do right now. If you've got a problem, tell me because I'm moving on here. So, so the first right I need to constantly be giving up is my right to, to my time. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's another one. My right to be comfortable. Anybody here like to be comfortable? I used to believe that if God was really using me and working, that conversations would just happen automatically. And it would be comfortable. It would be easy. That people would want to know the gospel. They would want to know about Jesus. And when those conversations didn't just naturally, comfortably happen, that must not have been God's will. I was here. And then I began to read my Bible, and I found that comfort is never guaranteed for Christians. I didn't put this verse up there, but I was thinking of in John 12, just before the cross, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified by dying. If a grain of wheat doesn't die, it remains alone. But if it dies and goes to the ground, it bears much fruit. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says that discipleship always begins with discomfort. Ever notice that? If you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to say no to yourself. In fact, you're going to have to take up your cross because he would save his life or lose it. But if you lose your life, if you bear that discomfort, if you step into discomfort, step into danger, step into what, it'll be uncomfortable until it's not. That's the idea there. Man came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Discipleship is never comfortable. Have you noticed that? It always starts with having to say no to your comfort, no to your convenience, no to what's easy. And then after you step out, then you, re- you get this joy. You, you get this pleasure of following Christ, but there's always a self-denial at the front end. And, and I found that when I talk to people when it's not comfortable, because it's never comfortable, when I step out and, and, and risk looking stupid and risk offending and risk all these things and... and that whatever happens, God seems to work, and I'm, I'm left with joy. 
because I obeyed him, regardless of what happens in the situation. Does that make sense? So I'm learning that to be used by God, I have got to take my right to comfort and place it on the altar before God and say, I'm willing to not be comfortable in order to be obedient. Let me give you one more, and uh, then we're done. And that is my right to a good reputation. I, like everybody, want to be thought of well. I want people to like me or respect me or not despise me. And that's fine until it gets in the way of following Jesus. Because I've kept quiet when I should have spoken up. And I've retreated when I should have advanced. And where I thought it would protect respect, I'd often left, lost respect as a result of that. When I've cared more about what people think than what God thinks, I just feel kind of yucky. And people don't respect me, and God is not pleased. But I found that when I, when I speak pleasing to God, when I say what I know God wants me to say, when I'm clear about Jesus, clear about what Jesus says, I feel the pleasure of God. And often, he uses me in people's lives. And so I've got to give up my right for respect Jesus said when he sent out the 12, he said, a disciple, is this, do we have these? No, we're going to use these. Okay, use John 15 instead. John 15, Jesus says, go back one. If the world hates you, know that it first hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you were of, not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, for this reason the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus said it's enough for a disciple to become like his master. That's the goal of the disciples, become like Jesus. And so the goal is, is to have people treat me like they treated him. So if people hate Jesus, they should hate me. They will hate me. And if they respect Jesus, they'll respect me. But being useful to God means putting my right to be well thought of, my right to have a good reputation on the altar if it means that uh, Jesus will be exalted and people will be cared for. Loving people more than what they think about me is the idea. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down the right hand of God. As Jesus is on the cross, what's he focused on? Is he focused on the pain? 
No, he's focused by faith on the joy he knows he will have when he has fulfilled his Father's plan and brought billions of us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. That's what he was focused on. And the writer, has, writer here is saying, you're in the same situation. That's the way you've got to see it too. Fix your eyes on him and the outcome of his race. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so you may not grow weary and lose heart. We're running the same race Jesus ran. And the writer says, look at him. Look what he did, so you may have the courage to complete the race like he did. Temporary suffering, temporary shame, eternal joy. That's the idea there. Next week, we'll, we'll look at how Paul's heart influences strategy in reaching people with the gospel. You can be a smart missionary or you can be a stupid missionary. But let me tell you, whether you're smart or stupid, it's going to be hard either way. There's no technique, no strategy, no skill that makes evangelism easy. Because that doesn't take any faith. It only takes faith when you step out in obedience to Jesus and out of love for this person, I am willing to give up whatever I need to give up to get the gospel to this person. I'm willing to give up my time. I'm willing to give up uh, my comfort. I'm willing to give up uh, my reputation. I'm willing to give up whatever I need to give up. I'm willing to sacrifice that so that this person can hear the gospel without knowing how that person is going to respond. That's Paul's heart. And that's the point that he's making in 1 Corinthians 9. The thing that will keep us sharing our faith is loving people the way Jesus loved them, the way Paul loved them. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here that you will help them to think through what keeps them from sharing their faith? What rights are they holding on to? And give all of us the grace to walk by faith, to trust you and step out, to be a little uncomfortable at times until we're not. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.